We've each been granted the honor by the God of heaven to assemble today that our health is as good as it is. The disposition of heart and mind has brought you and me to this location on this first day of the week. And what an honor and privilege it is that we can in fact do this as a time to honor and to in fact glorify God. It is, of course, always a blessing when we assemble to not only know those who have been sick but are able to be back with us, but also visitors and membership alike who are gathered, and we're just delighted that every person, as Roger mentioned earlier, is here today. At this point, perhaps it's fair also to comment. We find ourselves in the midst of a series of lessons in which we have been engaged for a number of Sundays now. Perhaps this opening slide will be a rehearsal of at least the major points of those particular lessons. We have been discussing worship. Back in January, we here at the Pippin Congregation chose to, in fact, read through the Word of God this year. And in so doing, the lessons each Lord's Day will be drawn from the texts that we have read this past week. As of the end of the day yesterday, 824 chapters have been read. That's almost 70% the fullness of the Word of God. But one of the chapters that we were busily reading last week was the opening chapter of Isaiah. And it is that text that brings us to this next saga in our study of worship. Several weeks ago, we began that series by noting that worship consists of acts of reverence directed to God. That definition, in fact, put us on a course to appreciate very powerfully that what many call worship really is not biblical worship. Acts of reverence directed to God, and following that, we begin to look at those matters of what are those acceptable acts. We first looked at prayer, and we also looked at the contribution, and found that those are vital and essential and significant parts of worship. Following that, we began to look at the matter of instruction, under the banner of preaching and found that that too was by edict of God a part of worship. At that point, last Sunday, we turned our attention to songs. What's involved in singing and the vital part that has in worship too? One by one as we have looked at all of them, we've been reminded that worship is in an active matter. It is not a spectator activity, but as you and I engage in it, be it the prayers, the Lord's Supper, the other elements we've studied, we have found that worship is a pleasing and very encouraging thing. As you and I come to this lesson today, we are prepared to look at another attribute, another element in those acceptable acts of worship. To do it, let's revisit that Old Testament text in Isaiah chapter 1. As we do that, we might well note these comments. I chose to begin it like this. I suppose that if you and I were to take a poll of a particular group of people in the world, the mere mention of the word worship likely would bring to mind a set of events that by itself should be described with emotion. It should, in fact, be characterized by eagerness and a bit of excitement. I suspect most would seemingly feel as if that association would be true. But you'll notice that in the mind of some, the very thought of emotion and the very thought of that alone is the determining guide as to whether or not the matter is acceptable. Some would be quick to say that as long as you're enthusiastic about it, surely God will accept it, whatever it is you're choosing to do. That thought... It perhaps can be expressed in language like this quote. 
I'd like to share with you, this is a quotation now from, from someone, and he stated it like this. It makes me so annoyed when people either feel like they have to take responsibility for your faith, or they try to act like it's their responsibility to control your choices. Just do what makes you happy. And in fact, let that be descriptive of the integrity and character of what's called worship in the mind of many. I'd like to ask you for a moment to revisit a few passages, not the least of which is this one in Isaiah chapter 1. And let us be reminded ever powerfully again to the fact that just calling something worship does not make it acceptable. Look at what the people of Israel were doing. Back to Isaiah chapter 1. A moment ago, as this was read in their hearing, the power of the passage is easily observed, isn't it? You and I notice so easily, verse number 11, To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me? The children of Israel, you and I know, for centuries prior to this, God had commanded them to bring sacrifices. You'll notice in this particular instance, God makes record of the fact that the sacrifices that they were bringing were not acceptable. He goes on to say, I am full of the burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts, and I delight not in the blood of bullocks, lambs, or he goats. God says, I don't find any delight in it. I'm full of it. To use another phraseology, I'm tired of it. That, you'll notice, immediately brings to our recognition, here the people were doing something in the name of worship, but yet God, in fact, was so displeased with it. On to verse number 12. When ye come to appear before me, they were making the willful choice of assembling when you come before me. He then says, Who hath required this at your hand to tread my courts? Verse 13 is the text from which I took the title of the lesson today. Bring no more vain oblations. Here the people were bringing their sacrifices. They were bringing their offerings and now God is specially commanded, don't bring this anymore. You and I might immediately recoil at the thought of to hear God describe worship like this. Incense is an abomination unto me. The new moons and Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies, I cannot away with. It is iniquity. How often do you remember in the Word of God an assembly called a sinful thing? And yet here's an open consideration. The people were coming together and in so doing were guilty of sin. It's iniquity, he says. The next verse goes on to put it like this. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hateth. God uses the word hate in description of their supposed worship. I hate it. Next he says, They are a trouble unto me. I am weary to bear them. Finally in verse 15, And when you spread forth your hands, I will hide mine eyes from you. Yea, when you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. As you and I think about Israel's worship described like this, it's fair to say this worship was unacceptable. What they were doing as they came together, the attitudes they were expressing, the details that were descriptive of their worship, God says, I hate it. I suppose anyone with any matter of clear thinking 
would quickly say today, what a tragedy it'd be for God to look upon our worship and say, I hate what they're doing. I hate that. And yet God said that of ancient Israel. Among other things, you and I could immediately appreciate the fact that just calling something worship and doing something in a supposed name of religion is far removed from scriptural worship. Worship is far more carefully described, it's far more profound, and it's far richer in its thrust than this. In fact, you might well notice a number of other passages that quickly bring before us the thought that worship by itself, just calling something that doesn't make it acceptable. Cain's sacrifice in Genesis chapter 4 wasn't accepted. Here he brought that which was, of course, the fruit of the ground. And God directly said, Cain, if you do well, won't you be accepted too? God didn't accept his worship then. In Exodus 32, the children of Israel, again, dancing around a golden calf. And God didn't accept that worship either. In 1 Kings 18, we remember the children of Israel. They're worshiping Baal on Mount Carmel. And, of course, that worship wasn't pleasing. Maybe our Lord stated it like this most efficiently in Matthew 15. As He made that description on that occasion, He made statement that, This people honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. Any time then when you and I have appreciated that men have substituted their thinking, their preferences, their ideas for, thus saith the Lord with respect to worship, that has rendered that worship unacceptable. It's rendered it incomplete and unsatisfactory. Maybe in light of that, it brings us to draw some conclusions and some powerful applications of this. We'll do that as we come to the very bottom statement on that slide. There is, of course, a remaining act of worship that is certainly needful for you and me to consider today. It is the observance of the Lord's Supper. As we do that, let's apply some of these principles we've learned from Isaiah chapter 1 and utilize them as we, in fact, study some New Testament applications of those principles. Might we do it like this? Let's set the scene and the stage for that Lord's Supper. You and I know how vitally significant the observance of the Lord's Supper should be. It all begins with its institution, of course, from the very authority of Jesus Himself, stated in Matthew chapter 26, Mark chapter 14, and Luke chapter 22. All three of those chapters bring before us that fateful evening prior to His crucifixion, when in fact our Lord, while observing the Passover, used a special time in that particular setting to establish that continuing memorial that still rings with such blessed greatness to this day, that memorial of the Lord's Supper. The scene that I've described like this, we realize that they were, of course, celebrating on that night the Passover. That was first seen by you and me back in Exodus chapter 12 as the children of Israel were preparing to leave Egyptian bondage and the tenth plague was about to come that night. God told them to prepare a lamb and to, of course, take of it with those other things, bitter herbs and unleavened bread. And as they partook of it, we remember they did leave in haste that night because the firstborn were found dead at the midnight hour. 
that celebration, that keeping of the Passover, God commanded His people to observe, and so Jesus was keeping it with His apostles on that evening. You'll notice, among other statements, we reach that text in which Jesus Himself took bread. He offered prayer and broke it and gave to those apostles and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is given for you, this do in remembrance of me. You can imagine the overwhelming scene as the Lord Himself took this bread, this unleavened bread, and He offered a prayer of thanks for it, and He then gave it to those, and then He said, This represents my body. Take, eat. As they partook then of that, recognizing its representation of the very body of Christ. Of course, Jesus was still alive with them then. But the very next day, that same body of which He had spoken, His body that is, was a body that of course would be crucified and nailed to a cross. This represents my body. It was to be a continuing memorial of that which His body represented and that which His body was enduring for their sake and for yours and mine as well. No wonder in light of that statement, you appreciate that Jesus with such power used words of remembrance. This do in remembrance of me. We'll revisit that word a bit later in the lesson again. But for right now, go ahead and observe the following. That wasn't all of this memorial for the Lord after supper took the fruit of the vine. And again, He offered a prayer of thanks for it. And then He said, all of you drink of it. And then He made a representation, a statement of incredible significance touching that which was the fruit of the vine. In Matthew 26, 28, This cup is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. And we find again a remarkable set of ideas. This cup is the New Testament. He linked it with the very nature of the New Covenant. The New Testament, the New Covenant in my blood, and there a linkage to the very blood that would be shed in light of our Savior's sacrifice, represented by that fruit of the vine, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. What drove the shedding of that blood was, of course, your sins and mine, that which caused you and me to be separated from God. At that point, you and I can well notice, the early church was faithful to observe that memorial. In fact, on the very first day the church was established, the birthday of the church, if you will, in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, it carefully says, They, that is those first apostles, about 3,000 of them were baptized that day. It says, They steadfastly kept the apostles' doctrine, breaking of bread, fellowship, and prayers. And that phrase, breaking of bread, is not infrequently utilized to attach to the elements of the Lord's Supper. They continued steadfastly. That adverb steadfastly suggests a diligence. It suggests a frequency and harmony with the teaching of the Word of God. They kept it faithfully. You'll notice that leads us then to those comments. Even on the missionary journey, when Paul in Acts chapter 20 came to the city of Troas, he tarried there for several days and 
to do so so that he could keep the Lord's Supper with those brethren. And later in Acts 21, another reference to his observing it with others. The Lord's Supper is such a meaningful thing. I realize many of us are so well aware of that truth already. But might we develop it perhaps like this? We do know that the New Testament by authority does help us see that the first day of the week is the day for its observance. We have no authority to take it on a Monday or a Thursday or a Saturday. And so you and I look forward to the first day of the week so that we can come together under the banner of the New Testament authority and among our activities we can celebrate with the Lord's Supper. That observance on Sunday brings us to appreciate the diligence that must characterize its observance. I would invite you at this point to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11 with me and listen to Paul's words to the church in Corinth concerning their observance of the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and we will begin reading in verse number 22. 1 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 22. What? Have ye not houses to eat and to drink in? Or despise ye the church of God and shame them that have not? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not. For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he brake it, and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup, when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood, this do as oft as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do proclaim or show the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world. Wherefore, my brethren, when ye come together to eat, tarry one for another. And we'll stop at the end of verse number 33. Isn't it true in light of those comments? We observe these elements that bring us fully to consider the sweetness of this Lord's Supper. There are only two of them, aren't there? The unleavened bread and the fruit of the vine. As you and I think about that matter of the unleavened bread, we notice that the Lord's Supper is then not a common meal. Hamburgers and french fries have no place on the Lord's Supper table, do they? Those are for a different purpose and a different time. And yet we find the church in Corinth was in fact turning the Lord's Supper, or at least abusing it in such a way that they were mingling it with a common meal. And it's important to keep that distinction in mind. Paul said, I don't praise you for this. Not only that, as they were partaking of it, they weren't taking it together. Some of them were taking it, and after another while, somebody else would. There's something about the communion 
the significance of that word and the nature that you and I as brothers and sisters in Christ take it together. It wouldn't be fitting to take of it at different places given it is simply that which signifies the unified body of Christ, His blood and that which He shed. You and I should be unified also in our observance of it. That unity perhaps is highlighted like this. The unleavened bread is a representation of His body. We know well that that body was mutilated, beaten, soon to be scourged in the light of that institution of Matthew 26. But yet as Paul reflected upon it here by inspiration, you'll notice he made use of the word broken in verse 24. Now please notice that word is in italics. It's not in the original Greek. That body was so terribly scourged, it was beaten, it was slapped and insulted and spat upon and bruised. But we do know from prophecy that not a single bone was broken. Maybe in light of that we can appreciate as we think about the nature of what that unleavened bread represents. It highlights a body that was sinless, pure, dedicated to God in every respect. In John chapter 7 as well as John chapter 8, the Lord said, I always do that which pleases the Father. And He commented about His devotion unto the Lord in Matthew, or rather John 6 verse 38. My meat is to do the will of Him that sent me and to finish His work. Maybe in light of those comments, we can turn our attention briefly to the contents of the cup. You'll notice Paul in verse number 25 of 1 Corinthians 11 says he took the cup. What was of greatest significance was the contents of that cup. In fact, this very context highlights it. The little plastic container is not the most important thing. It's that fruit of the vine that's inside it. Here we find Paul making reference, using a figure of speech highlighting that very act. Notice in verse 25, what he highlighted was what could be drunk. The cup is not what's drunk, it's its contents. And by metonymy, Paul made reference to that fruit of the vine. When you and I think then in a few moments today about this Lord's Supper, it's a very moving time, isn't it? It is a time to remember. You may even note the words on the front of that Lord's Supper table here in front of me, in remembrance of me. The thought then of remembrance and the highlighted characteristic that goes with it maybe brings us to some of these comments. Isn't it true that verse 26 tells us it is a very open and very strong proclamation of the Lord's death? All the world is able to appreciate by our observance of this that there was Jesus Christ and He did die at Calvary and He did shed His blood for the sins of the world. And by you and me taking this faithfully, as prescribed in the Word of God, we are able to proclaim that open fact about Christ, and that's to be done until He returns, however long that may be. The Lord's Supper is a proclamation, and you'll notice it stretches back to the very scene of the Lord's institution, and it stretches forward into the end of time. That's an amazing expanse, isn't it? It may well be with all those thoughts in mind, it brings us to develop the latter set of those verses like this. Let's begin by observing then the way in which you and I must partake of this. 
We've highlighted throughout our series of studies when it comes to singing and when it comes to prayer, for example, we've noted that those are to be done with understanding and they're to be done with your intellect and mind as we partake in them. What does this passage say about our participation in the Lord's Supper? Let's again read some of these thoughts. Verse number 27. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. We don't need to read any further before we conclude it is a serious matter to trivially, flippantly, unauthorizedly, and unworthily partake of the Lord's Supper. It must be done with the greatness of our capabilities as we reflect on what the Holy Spirit directed in these verses. You might well start like that. He expressly says, and he uses the adverb unworthily, to eat or drink unworthily is to be guilty of the very body and blood of Jesus. Now you and I know what they did to the Lord's physical body. They nailed it to a cross. A Roman soldier penetrated and pierced the side of it in John 19.34. We know blood, in fact, came out of it, spewed forth from it. He says, the person who unworthily partakes of the Lord's Supper is guilty of the very body and blood of the Lord. What a dramatically dark picture, isn't it? At this point, what's the significance then of this word unworthily? First thing you and I might carefully note is that the word is not unworthy. The two are very different. Quite frankly, any of us would be quick to say that not a one of us is worthy of the Lord's death. You and I are sinners. You and I, as such, are distanced from the way of God. Wasn't it true in Romans 5, beginning in verse 8? God commendeth His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners. He didn't say because we were already saved. While we were yet sinners, He died for us. None of us from that perspective are worthy of a single drop of the blood of Christ. But yet voluntarily and with great love and marvelous grace, He did die for us. Paul wasn't describing in this instance per se, your worthiness and mine. He was describing the unworthiness in relation to the manner of partaking. The word unworthily is an adverb. It's not an adjective. It describes the verb that is the verb describing our partaking, our observance of this. Verse 27 again, whosoever shall eat and drink. The verbs are eat and drink. That's what's being modified by the word unworthily. In a few moments when you and I partake of the Lord's Supper, if we partake of it in a manner in which it's described as unworthily, we come under the condemnation of a verse like this one. Look furthermore at what that suggests. Does that mean directly, verse number 27 and 28, that that means as we partake of it, the passage has already highlighted the thought of remembrance when you and I take that unleavened bread and we take that fruit of the vine, do we race in our mind back to the scene at Golgotha? Do we remember the character of His body? And do we remember with great excruciating agony, in a proverbial way at least, the thought of the blood that He shed? During the Lord's Supper is not a time to be thinking about dinner when you get home. 
It's not a time to be thinking about this afternoon's football game. It's not a time to be thinking about what's up on tap at work tomorrow. There's something far more vital and far more needful for the present moment. It is the thought of what has brought us together today to start with. There was one, the Son of God, that died for you and me. It's only through the shedding of His blood that we can be made whole and clean. And it's only through Him we can ever entertain the hope of heaven. Are we thinking then back to that sacrifice that makes all of that possible? You'll notice verse number 27 goes on to say, "...shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord." You and I think about those in the New Testament era that were in fact guilty of beating Jesus, like those Roman soldiers who scourged Him in John 19 verse 1. Those poor individuals did what they were told to do and they laid that great beating upon Christ. He says the person who unworthily partakes of the Lord's Supper puts himself in a category like people such as that. He goes on to say this, verse number 28, But let a man examine himself. Notice the verb examine. That means to evaluate. It means to give careful, reflective thought to. And so as the Lord's Supper comes around, we need to be busy directing in our mind, to the best we can at least, the thoughts concerning the Lord's body and blood. That examination says, so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. As we examine, thinking of the description of how you and I are partaking of it, again, that is to be done in a way that's described in a passage like this one. It goes on in verse 29 and says, For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself. That word damnation means condemnation to then fail to partake in the fashion described in the New Testament brings upon you and me a sentence of condemnation. And it does so in verse number 29, not discerning the Lord's body. Maybe that last segment of that passage is a powerful descriptive. As we partake of the Lord's Supper, that which renders our partaking of it unworthily is a failure to discern the body and blood of Christ. And that discern, word discern means to properly distinguish. It means to rightfully consider and distinguish from the common. One of the failures of the ancient people of Israel was they made no distinction between what was holy and what was common. But you and I as Christians must ever recognize the speciality of things like the Lord's Supper. Again, it's not a common meal, never has been, never will be. It is far more significant than that. It is to be a matter of discernment. Beyond that, we notice in verse number 30 and following, there was a rather strong set of statements about the church in Corinth relative to their failure in the observance of the Lord's Supper. It says, for this cause, that's a prepositional phrase highlighting, this is the explanation for what I'm about to say, Paul says. For this cause, your failure, he told them, in your failure in observing the Lord's Supper correctly. Many are weak and sickly among you. One of the major problems then describing the current failures in that ancient church at Corinth, you have failed to appreciate the Lord's Supper. You've lost the significance of what it meant. 
you no longer understand with discerning heart and mind the nature of what went into it. And for that reason, you are physically in a situation that can be described as sickly and weak. Now let's be quick to notice, that's a statement about their spiritual well-being. Spiritually, they were sick and weak. And we all know that we're admonished to grow in the Lord, 2 Peter 3.18. We're admonished to, in fact, arrive at a state of spiritual maturity. One of the barometers that helps us know how we're doing in that is the partaking of this Lord's Supper. If that's not very meaningful to me, if that's not very meaningful to you, it highlights there's a spiritual problem. There's something not right about my spiritual life. There's something not right about yours. No wonder then the Lord's Supper is described like this. Verse number 31. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. You and I are left ourselves to make that discernment. I can't read your mind and you can't read mine. When the emblems of the Lord's Supper are passed, it is a personal matter between you and me and the Lord Himself. Am I striving to remember? Am I striving to, in fact, properly discern His body and blood? Am I making an attempt and striving to that? Or am I doing something else? Whatever else it may be. No wonder then verse number 30 ended by saying, Many sleep. Sad to say, there were some who had died. They died apparently in a lost state because in Corinth, among other things, they'd failed to partake of the Lord's Supper rightly and now, sad to say, they'd passed from this life and no longer could, of course, repent. All that brings us to verse number 32. But when we are judged, we are chastened to the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world. Wherefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, tarry one for another. What a great difference it meant to partake of the Lord's Supper rightly. And sadly, they had failed in Corinth. I trust that as you and I reflect upon the Lord's Supper, we can use that as a proper time to think about what the Lord did for me and what He did for you. Maybe in light of all that, as you come to the bottom of that slide and transition to the next one, we are ready to appreciate what a tragedy it was in Corinth. Among their problems, this was one of them. May you and I never allow it to be so in our heart that the Lord's Supper becomes less than meaningful, that it becomes far more trivial or flippant. It may not physically take very long to partake of the Lord's Supper. Probably from the first moment we begin until the time we end is eight, maybe nine minutes or ten. But yet what a monumental ten minutes out of the week. It really is a powerful thing. And what an insult it is to Christ to partake of it unworthily. Today, as you and I come to the conclusion of the lesson, we might well do it as you move from that slide and think about these simple little statements of summary. You and I have said much using the text of the Bible as our guide. What a thrilling exposition is the Lord's Supper. I trust as we are about to look forward to partake of it, we can do so with all the fervor and energy and excitement of what it represents, a remembrance of things that happened at Calvary and a proclamation of the fact He's coming back. If you can't partake of it worthily today, in the way that would be characteristic of a life devoted and dedicated unto God, 
why not make things right? After all, it'd be an insult to partake of this and yet to not be a faithful Christian. You'd be speaking out of both sides of your mouth. In the Lord's Supper, you'd be attempting to make a claim of your association to Christ, but yet by the life you lived, you'd be paying insult to the very thing that you're striving to say. If you're not a faithful Christian, why not come to Him today? If you've never been baptized, we'd be delighted to assist you in that way. If you have been, but the Lord's Supper is not something that is what it should be to you, why not come back to your first love? And then, what a monumental thing it'll be to take of this Lord's Supper today. If right now we could be of any help to anybody in the audience, we'd be delighted to assist you and to help you. As we come to a discussion of the Lord's Supper today, what a very moving and compelling thing it's been. If it has compelled you to make changes in your life of a personal nature, we'd be delighted to pray on your behalf. If publicly, though, is a better thing to do, let us know that. We'd be happy to help you. Why not come while together we stand and while we sing?